Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. We, we turn from singing about God and praying to God to hearing from God as we turn our attention to hear from his word. And we're going to do that today as we pick up in this series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that we've been calling Rebuild. Series we ought to be desperately interested in. You ought to be desperately interested in. Because this is what we desperately need. Right? We need to be rebuilt as individuals and as a body, in our heads and our hearts, in our attitudes and affections, in our relationships with one another, and most significantly in our relationship with God. It's what we need, which ought to simply amplify our appreciation for the fact that this is precisely the kind of God we serve. A God who's in the business of reviving hearts and restoring life. Of taking his broken people and making them unbroke. Of fixing them and making them rebuilt. Which is what we've seen him do at this particular time, at this particular point in his people's history as he's rebuilt their identity. As he's rebuilt their worship as he's rebuilt their joy and what we're going to see today as we see him rebuild their confidence. That's what we're going to be looking at today, how God rebuilds his people's confidence. But not as some of us would expect, rebuilding his people's confidence in themselves. But rather that He rebuilds their confidence in him, in him and his word. And we're going to see it as we walk through Ezra chapters 7 and 8. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there, where similar to what we did last week, I want to just start, begin by reading the introduction to this passage found in Ezra chapter 7 verses 1 to 10. Let me do that. Let me read from Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, and you can follow along with me as I do. This is God's word. It says this. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meriah, son of Zeriah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the high priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God. Was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh month year of Artaxerxes the king some of the the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants 
And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're gathered here today to be rebuilt. As you rebuilt your people back in the days gone by. To have our identity rebuilt and our worship rebuilt and our joy rebuilt and our confidence. But as much today as it would have been back then, I pray that it would be to have our confidence rebuilt, not in ourselves, but in you and your word. That despite all the tricks of your enemy and all the footholds he has in our own lives, all the division that he seeks to sow and is already reaping among us. Pray that as those who need to, we can have confidence both for ourselves and for the world around us, as those who need to be spoken to as much as we need to be those who speak as your prophets today, that we can have confidence. I pray that we would. Confidence that you will accomplish your will through the power of your word, which I pray you would do even now as we turn to it and hear from it and look through it at your son Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Well, it's been said that a tool is only as good as the one that wields it. A tool is only as good as the hand that wields it. And to a certain extent, that's absolutely true. Sailor was fussing the other day while I was working next to her, and I handed her a screwdriver to calm her down. Now, I get it now. I, I've, I've put that on the list of things not to do again. Just added another one. Don't pick up two kids at the same time during the worship. I put this on the list, a, a totally dad thing to do. Hand your six-month-old a screwdriver to make her stop crying, right? In the process, she loses an eye, but at least she stopped crying for a moment. I get it. Not a good idea. But... To tell you the truth, if I learned nothing else from this experience, it was the fact that a tool is only as good as the hand that wields it. She couldn't fix a thing. I remember growing up, my dad had a screwdriver of his own, a special one, that he'd get out when no other screwdriver would do the trick. And he could do just about everything with it. And I remember he'd ask me to hand it to him, and I'd pick the thing up like it was a, a wizard's wand. But it would do nothing in my hands. Yet as soon as he got a hold of it, sh shazam! Cars would start working. 
the faucets would stop leaking, the lame would walk again, and the men in my neighborhood would stand and marvel and say, we have never seen a thing like this. Why? Because in many ways, the tool is as good, was as good, as the hands that wielded it. But now that I'm a dad, and I'm starting to collect tools of my own, i got to say that as much as it matters, the hands that wield it, in almost every case when it comes to the, the confidence you can put in a tool, more important were the hands that fashioned it, the hands that made it. I've got a few tools that belong to my grandpa, made in Germany before the war. Tools that, best I can tell, belong to his grandpa. And tools that will still be working when I pass them down when I'm a grandpa. But tools that I'll be able to pass on, not really because of any of the hands that have wielded them, but because of the hands that fashioned them. Why? They were tools that were made to last. Like good old craftsman tools. You remember them? Not, not the ones that we've gotten used to in these recent years, but the ones that came with a lifetime guarantee. You remember? A lifetime guarantee. You don't see that too often anymore. Tools that were, were, were made in America. Tools that, that you could trust in. Tools that you could put your confidence in. Because the one who made the tool had built that confidence in you. Because it says something about your tools, right? If you can, you're willing to back them with a lifetime guarantee. Back before Sears started to go under and then started outsourcing the manufacturing overseas. Interesting, though, Craftsman is showing up again. Have you seen them? In Menards and Farm and Fleet. They're showing up again, and, and even that lifetime guarantee that ha had all but disappeared is once again re-emerging, at least for a lot of their hand tools. It's re-emerging in part because they've, they've brought manufacturing back stateside, and they're making them like they used to, and are once again rebuilding confidence in their tools, which matters. Why? Because more than the hands that wield it. A tool is only as good as the hands that fashioned it. Yet what's true for a tool fashioned by man is so much more true for a tool that was fashioned by God. And specifically for a tool that God has time and time again built and rebuilt his people's confidence in. The tool of his word. A tool that is at the heart of this passage today, a tool that God rebuilt his people's confidence in, but let's be clear, rebuilt not because God at some time started outsourcing the manufacturing, but because his people had wandered off after foreign ripoffs, and that's why their confidence needed to be rebuilt. 
And God in his never-ending grace to rebuild them, this is exactly what he does in the process, rebuilds his people's confidence in his word. And did so in this passage, what we're going to see in this passage today, in at least three ways. By providing the means, by prompting the men, and by protecting the message. By providing the means, by prompting the men, and by protecting the message. By providing the means necessary to put that tool to work. By prompting the men who would do so. And by protecting the message in the process. Three ways God rebuilt back then his people confidence in his word that maybe we can learn something from about why we can have that confidence today. First, as we look at how God rebuilt his people's confidence by providing the means, by providing the means necessary to put that tool to work, which is what these two chapters are really all about, putting that tool to work. As they finally introduce us, these two chapters, to the man this book is named after, to Ezra, nearly 60 years after the temple had been restored. A man born in the line of Aaron, the chief priest, the first priest, which sort of set Ezra apart as the man for the job. But notice that he's even more particularly a man labeled, verse 6, as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. He's a man of the word. Which is why the, the king granted him all that he asked. Pretty big statement. The king granted him all that he asked. Because notice the phrase, though, right? The hand of the Lord his God was on him. Which is what it says again at the end of verse 9. For the good hand of his God was on him. Why? For verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He was a man of the word. So that the good hand of his God was on him. It's a phrase that comes up repeatedly in these two chapters to, to highlight the fact that God has a vested interest in his word work. And it's a phrase that's used first to make the point that God will provide the means necessary to put that word to work. Which is, we see, which is what we see him do here, primarily through the hand of this king. And we see it, like so often in these two books, in the form of a letter, right? Those are included along the way, these official letters. that, In this case, King Artaxerxes, let's call him Artie, just for fun, gives to Ezra, who, who notice again is described in verse 11 as a, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. And even Artie recognizes this when he addresses this letter in verse 12 to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, the scribe of the law, which may very well have been an official position within the Persian Empire. Ezra being a scholar in residence who, who would have stood in the gap between the Persians and this particular people group. 
the insider who understood their ways and the word that made them tick. But the point here is that God provides for this man because this man is a man of God's word. And let me just point out a few of the ways in this letter that God does that, that God provides by by Artie's hand for his word work. Beginning with the fact that Artie grants any and all who, who, who would join Ezra, similar to how Cyrus had, Artie grants them, Artaxerxes grants them to go with Ezra up to Jerusalem, which is what Artaxerxes says in verse 13, by royal decree, that any may go up. But why? For, he says, you are sent by the king and his seven counselors, verse 14, first and foremost, to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law, the law of your God which is in your hand. So go up and take any who will go with you to see how your people are doing, how they're getting on when it comes to living under the law, when it comes to God's word. God provides for for the work of his word first through this grant. God also provides, though, through a gift, which is maybe more to the point of why Ezra needed others to go with him, carry all the stuff. I'm a dad, I know what that's like. Be invited somewhere just so you could carry the stuff. Carry the kids. I know what that's like to be the pack mule. Well, Ezra seems to have needed that as much as anybody. Because look at all the stuff he sent with. Verse 15, the gold and the silver given by the king and his counselors. Verse 16, the gold and the silver found elsewhere throughout Babylonia. And specifically, the gold and the silver given by the people and the priests gifts that that would be used to buy all manner of animals to be offered on the altar of Jerusalem to carry out that word work, part of which was the sacrificial system. But look at verse 18, because good old Artie, he also says that whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. And then again in verse 20, he says that whatever else is required for the house of your God, which falls to you to provide, he says, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And you better believe that this word guy, this word guy was going to take that money and use it for word work. And don't think that that somehow would have violated the original intent of the gift as if Ezra was using these restricted funds designated for the temple for something other than their intended purpose. 501c3, license, out the window. Because though we often think of the temple solely as a place of sacrifice, let's not forget that the temple was also, from the very beginning, meant to be a place of study, where God's people would get right with God And then learn how to get on with God. Learn how to live before God and learn by sitting under his word. Just like Jesus did when he was a boy, right? Because these two sides of God's work, of saving 
and sanctifying, of getting someone in and growing someone up. These two sides have always gone hand in hand. God provides for the one as much as he provides for the other. With a grant, with a gift, lastly, with a gavel which is where Artie ends after, after even going so far as to exempt those working with Ezra from having to pay taxes. That's something, right? That's astounding in itself. But he lastly, though, gives Ezra the power of the gavel when he says in verse 25, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, just another name for God's word, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, Appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. What? That God's people would once again live in God's land under God's word. But this is crazy. This is nuts. Functionally stripping the regional powers of their judicial authority and seating in the judge's seat the ones who were supposed to be under them. So much so that Artaxerxes says, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods, which were going into Ezra's pocket, or for imprisonment. Just like what had happened back in Persia under Artaxerxes' predecessor, a guy named Xerxes. Not Artie the first, he was just Xerxes. When, when a Jew named Mordecai, you remember the story? When a Jew named Mordecai was lifted up from a death sentence to the gallows to reign above even the one who had sentenced him. Second in rank, only to the king himself. Which maybe was part of God's plan of how we would eventually end up with Ezra being granted so much. Because as crazy as it is, it's not so crazy for God, who has a vested interest in providing as, and is able to provide for the work of his word. And in doing so, rebuilds the confidence of his people, what Ezra calls courage. Because look at what he says in verse 27 when he describes his reaction to the letter, when he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, which is about more than just the gold and the silver. It's about the return of his word. The one who put such a thing into the heart of the king and who extended to me, Ezra says, his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. God rebuilds his people's confidence in his word first by providing the means of putting it to work. Second, by prompting the men 
who would do so. And here, I'm not meaning to diminish the role of, of women doing so also. Nor do I don't think that's what the Bible's doing either. But rather, I mean to, to highlight the importance of the role of men and of the unique responsibility of men to lead out in that. Which is really what you find as this account transitions to chapter 8. When, when Ezra lists off the names of the heads of the father's houses that went up with him. Those who answered the call and whom God stirred, God prompted from many of the same clans as those who had returned back in chapter 1, some 80 years before. Who returned now, though, this second group, who returned now, though, not to restore the, the sacrificial side of the temple, as their earlier counterparts had, but to restore with Ezra the study side, which we're going to find next week was desperately needed. So much so that there's a sense in which the, 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 the work of that first return, some 80 years before, was understood as incomplete without the work of this second return recorded here. Which is why the Exodus language that was likewise used back in chapter 1 of the peoples going up to the promised land is used here as well. As the, these heads of the houses are now said to have went up with Ezra. And that they further, verse 15, just to, just to extend that Exodus imagery, it further says in verse 15 that they then camped by this river for three days. It's Exodus language. It's depicting them like God's people before them who had for three days before entering the promised land, camped by the river Jordan. Again, as if to say that the, the work of that second Exodus under Zerubbabel was incomplete without the work of this second exodus under Ezra. But having the heads of those houses on board, the, the men who would take responsibility for leading their families and putting God's word to work, notice that Ezra is not satisfied with it. Because as much as God had given responsibility to men to lead their families, he had also seen fit to, to designate some men to lead the leaders. Some who might devote themselves more fully, take responsibility more fully to the word of God and to prayer. Which back in Ezra's day was a role given to the sons of Levi, to the Levites, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the 12 that had not been wiped out by the Assyrian exile because they were embedded within Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes that survived. It was a role that was given to the sons of Levi, to the Levites who would oversee the sacrifice and the study of the temple day and night. And there's a whole story that, that goes with that as to, to why they were chosen for that particular role. But notice here that when Ezra camps beside the river and reviews the people and the priests, verse 15 says that no sons of Levi were found. So that he sends an envoy back to, to rectify the situation. 
to a certain man named Ido. These are great names, right? Ido. Next child comes along. You got one there. Ido. In a, a certain town named uh, Casaphia, w- where there was known to be a number of these Levites. It says in verse 18 that, what? By the good hand of our God that was on us, that envoy brought us a man of discretion, a man named Sherebiah and his kinsmen, along with two others, Hashabiah and Jeshiah. Men of discretion who could carry out their duties capably, competently, with character. Again, though, brought them how? By the good hand of our good God. Because God has a vested interest in the work of his word. Which is why he first provides the means by which his word will be put to work. Just like Jeff was sharing just a few minutes ago, right? Providing the means. And why he second prompts the men who will be put in those positions to put it to work. Raising up the the heads of houses first. Raising up Ezra. And then raising up those who, who would devote themselves even more fully to that. Even as he raises up moms to do it with their kids and wives, to do it with their friends and women generally, to do it alongside those who take and have to take responsibility for it. Because God has a vested interest in the work of his word and in the rebuilding of his people's confidence in it. Which he lastly, likewise, does by protecting the message. Building his people's confidence in his word by protecting the message of his word. Which is what the rest of chapter 8 is all about. How when packed up and ready to go, loaded down with the basic contents of Fort Knox, that's what God had provided for the work of his word, how Ezra refuses to ask good old Artaxerxes for a royal escort. Why? Well, verse 2 tells us, For I was ashamed, he says, to ask the king for a band of soldiers to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. He was ashamed. At the statement, Probably not. As long as it's not pushed too far, it'll hold theological water. It's pretty tight because God is good to his own, whether they live for Christ or die for gain. The statement's true enough. More likely, Ezra was ashamed at how that statement could be misheard mistaken, misunderstood. Because I can imagine Ezra for himself, he would have been quite ready to die at the hand of bandits if that's what God had for him. 
And I imagine that under other circumstances, he would have been quite ready to ask for an escort to avoid dying, as I would have done. But having already made the, the public declaration that the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, I don't think Ezra was willing to attach the reputation of the God of heaven to the goodness of the king on earth. So what does it say? It says that for the protection of the message that the hand of God is indeed good for all who seek him. For the protection of the message, rather than turn to the king and state God's reputation on the request, he instead turned to God whose reputation was at stake. In prayer, and fasting, and humility. He humbled himself. He invited all God's people to humble themselves before God, imploring our God, he says, verse 23, for this, it says, and he listened to our entreaty. And they set out. Four months later, with Fort Knox in their packs, they rode into Jerusalem, put all those funds and all that provision right where it was supposed to be in the temple. They arrived, and how, though? Because verse 31, as it says again, the hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. Let me just step back from the text here for a second to just remind you that there is an enemy far greater than any foreign king ever was. There is an enemy far worse than any bandit by the way. An enemy that at this very moment, and this is something I think as a church we need our eyes open to, that at this very moment is working to undo the work of God. And that is doing it here, among us, with footholds he already has in our lives, if we would just admit it to tear us apart, tear down the unity that God's only Son, Jesus' blood, bought with his own life. To clog our ears, to stuff our voices, to shatter our confidence in the word, the very word that God is trying to build our confidence in. And some of us know that more than others. And I'm not trying to tell you something of my own. This is the point. And yet God is doing a different thing. And I think the encouragement for those of us who are going through that now, facing that now, 
is that the very word that God is building his people's confidence in is a word that is all about how in the end God wins. Because God has a vested interest. God has a vested interest in his word. He has a a vested interest providing for the means by which it will be put to work, prompting the men and the the women alongside them, the the children who will rise up, who will do so, and by protecting the message in the process. So you can have confidence. You can have confidence as you put that word to work yourself, both for you and for those you speak it into both here and for those outside these walls. The means that, 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 by a means that was provided by God's only Son that far outdoes any Fort Knox we have in our nation. You can put confidence in it because God has prompted the men and the women who will stand up on his behalf, become his mouthpieces, and speak. And you can put confidence in it because God intends to protect this thing till the very end. Which means it's a tool with an eternal lifetime guarantee. Let me encourage you then in three ways. Picking up on the description of Ezra back in chapter 7, verse 10. You remember it? It says this about Ezra. He says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. And let me encourage you to be like Ezra. Let me encourage you to love it, live it, and speak it. To love it. Like our kids are learning back there in Sunday school right now as they're they're memorizing Psalm 1. To delight themselves in the law of the Lord. To delight themselves in the Word which is all about the Son. Let me encourage you to love it. To place it in your life above all other affections to care about it more than the game this afternoon, more than whatever is going to catch your attention this week, more than whatever is going to derail your life, care about the Word, which is all about the Son. Love it. But secondly, let me encourage you, like Ezra, to live it. Because, right, delighting yourselves in the law of the Lord is about not walking in the ways of the wicked, not sitting in the, in, in the counsel of the scoffers, not standing wherever they stand. It's about walking God's way in God's world according to God's word. Live it. Allow it. Get out of the way. Put God's word first over you and let it transform your life.
And thirdly, teach it. Speak it. I love what it says about Ezra, right? I love what it says in this passage that, that, that he's sent by the king to do what? To go check on your people and hold them accountable to your word, all who know it. And then what? For those who don't, to teach them. Can we not take up the banner of Ezra as God's people today? And how much more for those who have such, a, such an increase in that word in the person of Jesus Christ, who have such a fulfillment of the promises, such a, such a hope now that, that outlasts the grave, how much more can we dedicate ourselves to holding each other to the word and by teaching those who don't know it? Because this is what we so desperately need, whether you know it or not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray um, by your Spirit, the power of your Spirit, the authority of your Son, under your word, that you would remake us into the image of your son. I pray for those who walk in here today, who have walked in here today with struggles that are of a size they have never faced before. Pray for those you are testing through life's hard moments. I pray that you would comfort them, abide with them, walk with them, and hold them close. I pray that as much as our enemy is trying to stuff your word down, I pray you would stuff his. I pray you would break through the fog of our lives, break through the noise of our lives. And show us more of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.